Who you are determines what you do. Who someone is by identity drives what they do by action. Think about it. Doctors do what? Practice medicine. Why? Because they're doctors. That's what they do. Mechanics fix cars. Why? Because they're mechanics. That's what they do. By nature, they are this. Therefore, they do what's in line with their nature. There's also something that's true, though. What we do in relation to different people is going to be different based on how we relate to them. I'm married to Kate. I relate to Kate differently than I do anyone else on the face of the planet. I come home to her. When I come home, I kiss her. I don't kiss anybody else. Why? Because in relation to me, she is my wife. She doesn't kiss any other guys. Who you are drives what you do, but who you are in relation to each other drives how you act towards each other. My children are my children. There are ways that I relate to them that would be inappropriate towards other children. When they disobey, it would be inappropriate if I disciplined any other kids because in relation to me, they're not my kids, right? So who we are dictates what we do, and who we, how we do what to each other is determined by our relationship. That's true of God. God does because of who God is. We often talk about God's works. He, he saves, he judges, he provides. But he doesn't do that in a vacuum. He judges and saves and provides because of who he is. And how he relates to us as humans is determined by our relationship to him whether we are in Christ or not in Christ. The book of Nahum is going to show us that. We are going to begin the book of Nahum with a ton of verses about who God is. And then we'll look at what He does. But He grounds it in who He is. And how He treats people is based on how they relate to Him. We are either in Him or not in Him. So Nahum chapter 1, and we'll be going through all 15 verses this morning. Nahum chapter 1, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord by, or will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt. The earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. 
But with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength in many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your God I will cut off. In the carved image and metal, in the metal image, I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows. For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Strong language. This is a strong book. Today our main point will be this. God judges and saves because of who He is by nature. God judges and saves because of who He is by nature. Verses 2 through 6, first we're going to see that God is just. We'll see that God is just. And then 7 to 15, we'll see that God is good. So, outline today, God is just, God is good. Before we get to verse 2, though, we have to get some context for the book. We're, we're beginning the book of Nahum. Verse 1 tells us this is an oracle about Nineveh. So we just went through the book of Jonah, which was a book by a prophet who went to the city of Nineveh. Jonah went to Nineveh, and he preached to this wicked city, and they repent, and God is merciful to them. Fast forward 100 years from Jonah, and this could be labeled the sequel, Nineveh Part 2. 100 years later, Nineveh has turned away from the Lord. In a sense, they've repented of their repentance. They've gone back to their evil ways. And in those hundred years between Jonah and Nahum, Assyria has now risen to the, the level of sole world superpower. They're, they're the big kid on the block. Nobody messes with them. They destroy everybody and they're proud of it. They're evil. And they boast in it. And God sends them a prophet, Nahum, who has a very different message for this same city than Jonah did. Where Jonah came and God was merciful, now God is going to speak through Nahum and say, enough's enough. Judgment will fall. But one thing to notice in verse 1 is it's an odd thing. In the Hebrew language, it literally reads, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of comfort. The name Nahum means comfort. It's a play on words here. This book, and it only gets stronger in chapter 2 and 3, is actually a book intended to give comfort. Now you say, I read along with you for that first chapter. 
Where's the comfort? Well, just tuck that question, where does the comfort come, in the back of your mind, because when we get to verse 15, it will, we'll get there. But this is a book intended to comfort God's people. When I read that, I was like, this is odd. This is the way you comfort God's people. Well, first, let's look at the first thing. God is just. Notice all these places, it says the Lord is. It doesn't say what he does. It says who he is by nature. The first thing we find in these first six verses is that the Lord is just. God is just. He's just, look at verse 2, because he's jealous. Now we get the idea of jealousy as a bad thing. There is a bad kind of jealousy. But the word jealous here literally means zeal. He is zealous for his own glory. God is the supreme being in all the universe. There is none higher than him. There is none that could even be conceived that is greater than him. He alone is the one who deserves all glory, honor, and praise. And he is jealous to protect that. The world he has made, he made for himself. Isaiah says it over and over. I made you for myself. He's created us for his own glory. And that, that's not something where God is like this egomaniac that's the me monster and, and it, it's all just about him in a bad way. It's right for him to receive praise. For something to be set up higher than him would be wrong because there is nothing higher than him. God is by his nature glorious, therefore he desires that he receive glory. In the second commandment, in Exodus 20, where he tells them, first, have no other gods before me. Then he tells them, don't worship, any, don't worship me through any false means because I am a jealous God. He's jealous, desirous, zealous to protect his praise. But also notice this. God is zealous for his glory in a way that doesn't contradict having our best interest in mind. God is, by his nature, self-giving. He's generous. He has your good and my good in mind. And he is zealous for his glory in a way that's also zealous for our good. I don't have a perfect illustration for this, but I think about parenting. I am zealous that my children respect me. I have been put, rightfully so, in a position where they should respect me. When they don't, I, I want to make sure that they know that's not okay. But in doing that, it's not like there aren't benefits for them in respecting authority. Growing up, if they don't respect authority, they'll be a mess. Try to keep a job when you don't respect your boss. Try to do good in school when you don't respect your teachers. So to, I'm zealous that they respect me, but there's also benefits for their good. God is zealous for his people and all people to worship him, but it's for our good. Worshiping him alone as supreme will protect us from the dangers and heartbreak of sin. Setting things up that are not God's will only lead to our own heartbreak. So he's zealous for his glory, but that's also in a way that's for our good. God is jealous for his glory. God is just. Look at the next couple of attributes here. It says that God is a jealous, and then it says avenging 
and wrathful God. God is avenging and wrathful. The word avenging simply means that He'll vindicate His own glorious name when it's opposed. It has the idea of a just or appropriate repayment for a wrong done, a, a just retribution. God, because He is just, cannot let sin go unpunished. Therefore, in His justice, He will punish sin. And He will have wrath towards sin. Wrath is, means exactly what it sounds like. It's burning anger or furiousness. Sin is evil and God in His justice hates it. God hates false worship. God hates pride. God hates covetousness. God hates sexual immorality because of who He is. And it's good and right for Him to do so. Now, you, if you're following along, you may be saying, well, this is the Old Testament God. He gets a little nicer when Jesus comes on the scene, does He not? No, He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. We read in Romans 1 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. Jesus says in John 3 that His wrath is upon those who do not believe. God, by nature, is jealous for His own glory. God, by His nature, is just, and He will punish sin. He will not let it go. He will not look the other way. Again, maybe you're sitting here saying, the God of wrath and justice is a monster. I've heard that said so many times. A God that would be wrathful is a monster. And I would flip that. The God that could look upon genocide, the God that could look upon child abuse and be indifferent is the monster. It is good to have a God that hates evil. It is good to have a God who will not tolerate injustice. That's the God we read of here. The Lord is jealous. The Lord is just. Verse 3, the Lord is patient in judgment. Verse 3 tells us, the Lord is slow to anger. This is good news. He's not like us. Our anger is often uncontrolled and kind of bursts out. The Lord is always under control. He's slow to anger. He's patient. He's not mastered by anger. This is a beginning of a quote from the book of Exodus, chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. In Exodus 34, 6 and 7, God is revealing himself to Moses, and, and he says that he is a Lord gracious and merciful and compassionate and slow to anger. Jonah chapter 4, Jonah quoted that. And it was all those positive side of the attributes, where he's like, Lord, you're just so merciful and compassionate. Jonah now quotes the rest of the verse, or Nahum quotes the rest of the verse. It's going to show us the difference between Jonah and Nahum. Jonah, it's all grace towards Nineveh because they repent. Nahum, it's judgment because they don't repent. And here, he's a God slow to anger. He delays judgment. Well, why does he delay judgment? It's for their good. Romans 2 tells us that he delays judgment that we might repent. The Lord would be right to judge us the moment we sin, but he doesn't. Why? Why does he delay judgment? 
because he desires us to be made right with him. He's slow to anger. Charles Spurgeon said his words to bless come out fast and his words to curse come out slow. But they come. Look, it continues. He says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. This word great in power is used of two different things in the Old Testament. It's used of God's creation and God's salvation. He created the world by the word of his power. He upholds it by the word of his power. There is no lack of power in him. It's used when he parts the Red Sea. The Lord is mighty in power. He can, he can part seas and stop rivers and stop armies. But in this context, it's used of judgment. It, it's here to, to correct the idea that in verse 3, his slowness to anger is because he somehow lacks power to do it. Oh, Assyria is the world power, and God would be right to judge them, but he hasn't yet because he's not strong enough. He needs to wait till they weaken a little bit. And this verse is there to say, that's not the case. He's mighty in power. Nothing can stand against him. He lacks no power. His delay in judgment is not because of a lack of power. Also, his delay in judgment is not because he's indifferent. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. He's slow to anger. But remember, he's just. The judge of all the earth must do what is right. When there is crime, there must be punishment. The judge of all the earth, when he delays judgment, it's not because he's indifferent. We're reminded he will not clear the guilty. It's not like God is in heaven and we're like, look at the Assyrians. They're really, really bad. Do you know what they do to people, God? Do you even care? This verse is like, he cares. He will do something, even though he delays judgment. He's not indifferent. He's, he's not indifferent to all the injustices you turn on your television and see. He will by no means clear the guilty. And we say, yes, amen. He will by no means clear the guilty. It gets a little more uncomfortable when we realize that means us too. He will, he will judge the murderer. And we're, we're like, yes, the Stalins and the Hitlers. Yes, by no means clear the guilty. But the liar, the person that cheats on their taxes, he will by no means clear the guilty. He delays judgment because he loves and desires to be merciful. But make no mistake, it's not because he's not powerful enough, and it's not because he doesn't care. When we see evil in the world, and we say, where is justice? This verse tells us, by nature, he will bring it about. And even for us in our sin, when we say, I'm getting away with it, he must not care. I've, I've been waiting. It hasn't come. He is not indifferent. He's not indifferent. His nature will not allow him to be. There will come a day where all sin will be punished. This God is just. These verses don't tickle the ears, but they're in the Bible. This is the God of Scripture. Because he is a just judge, guess what he does? He judges. 
He judges because of who he is. Look at verse 3, the second part of verse 3 through verse 6. We'll see not just that he is a just judge, but he justly judges. Verse 3, the second part, it says, His way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. What we see here is a picture, a poetic picture of God descending. We start with the clouds, and he comes to the waters, and the mountains, and the hills, and the land. It's a picture that the judge is coming to earth. He, he comes, and this is, this is in a sense an attack against the Assyrian gods. They, they worship the clouds. They, they worship the, the God who could bring storms and, and winds and rains. And God here says, those things that you think are gods, they're just stuff for me to step on. I'm coming. I'm coming. I'm coming. He comes on the clouds. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. If he can do this to the sea and the rivers, imagine what he does later on to his enemies. Bashan and Carmel wither. The blooms of Lebanon wither. These are probably three of the most fertile areas in the ancient Near Eastern world. This would be like saying Seattle has no water. No rain falls in Seattle. The very things that give life, the created order, are turned upside down, and God says, no longer. He's coming to judge. The mountains quake. Listen, mountains aren't supposed to do that. Mountains are known for their stability, and, and it, they don't change. They quake. They melt. They heave. And then we get to people at the end of verse 5. The world and all who dwell in. The judge is coming to judge. And before we get to Assyria in verse 9, we start with worldwide. Everything that's going to happen to Assyria in this book is a microcosm of what God will do globally one day. He will judge all the world in righteousness, all who dwell in it. It's universal. It's not just Assyria. Let me ask the question he asks in verse 6. This God who is jealous for his own glory, this God who, who is wrathful and vengeful against sin, though he's slow to bring judgment, is mighty to do it and will do it because he's not indifferent. And this God is coming. And verse 6 says, Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? Answer, Nobody, no one will stand. Where will you run that he is not there? Where will you hide that his eyes don't see? What will you protect yourself with that he didn't create? You and I are defenseless against the creator when he comes to judge. There's nothing we can do to stop it. What will you do to stop God's judgment? Be better today? Not swear tomorrow? Give more money to charitable organizations. Remember, he will no way clear the guilty. Even if you don't sin from now to the moment you die, what about all the sin we have committed? We're guilty, all of us. And by his nature, he must judge. He can have no mercy for any sin ever. 
because he's just. Where will we go? We end our first point, verse 6, with that question. Who can stand? No one. What a depressing book that would be if we just stopped at verse 6 and said, have a great day, go be merry, have lunch. Verse 7 is there. God is not only just, he's good. He's good. Verse 7, the Lord is. Doesn't say he does, doesn't say he feels. It says he is good. Don't answer out loud. Define the word good without using the word good. I tried to do that all week, and it was very difficult. What does good mean? We say God's good all the time. How many times do we say, God is good all the time and all the time? What does that mean? Well, I think the best way we can define it is this. He's perfect. All he does is worthy of approval. He's perfect. Everything that is desirable is found in him. And it doesn't just say he does good. By nature, he is good. By essence, he is good. He is the standard and definition of what is good, what is worthy of approval, what is perfect. And praise the Lord, unlike us, he is independently good. When we're good, it's because something's been added to us, and we, we improved. We're good when people help restrain the bad in us. God is not like that. He is good in and of himself. He doesn't need something to improve him. He doesn't need something to restrain him. He doesn't need something to supplement him. He is goodness itself, incarnate in the person of Christ. God is good eternally. He was good in eternity past, he's good now, and he will be good forever because God is unchanging. He will never be anything other than good. He won't get better, and he will never get worse. He is good. He is worthy of approval. Sometimes it's helpful to find something by what it's not. When we say that God is good, we also could say he's not bad. He's not evil. Anything that we would ever think of as bad, he's not that. He's not unjust. He doesn't look at sin and let it go. He doesn't take bribes. He's not unjust in his judgment. He, he doesn't judge according to person. He's no respecter of persons. He doesn't lie. He doesn't have an immoral thought. He's good. He's not bad. The Lord is good. Next thing it tells us that he is, is that he is a stronghold in the day of trouble. To paraphrase that, I would say he is a savior. We ask the question, who can stand against his indignation? No one. Unless God provides refuge. And he doesn't just provide a fort. He is the refuge. He, by nature, is a Savior. As hard as verses 1 through 6 are, there is good news. God himself is a refuge from his own just wrath. He, by nature, is a Savior. He is the answer to where will you be safe from God, in God alone. He's a shelter. He's a refuge. He's a fort. 
You go to a fort not in times of peace. You go when there's danger. You don't go to a shelter when it's 80 degrees and sunny outside. You go when there's a storm. And here we find there is a storm of God's wrath coming. There's danger. He's coming. But he's provided a stronghold because that's who he is by nature. He's a savior. He he is one who provides for. We fast forward to the New Testament. It's exactly what Christ is. Christ is the shelter from God's judgment. Christ is the one who comes and lives an innocent life. Christ is the one who has no sin in him, who is good as a man, who keeps the law. And God takes all of our sin and lays it on him. In his justice, pours out his wrath fully on our sin. He's good. He does not let sin go. But he can also be gracious to sinners because he's punished it on his son. He provides a shelter. Romans 1, we said, says that his wrath is coming against all unrighteousness. And then in Romans 3, we find that Christ is the answer to this. God is just in Christ. He's punishing sin, but he also can be merciful to sinners and justify them when they come to him. He is by nature a savior. He he is by nature one who provides shelter from the storm. God is good and God is a savior. So what does he do? He saves. Why? Because that's who he is. Look at the end of verse 7. He knows those who take refuge in him. He knows them. He knows those who once were enemies that deserved his wrath but have come to him for shelter. He knows those. He knows them personally. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep by name. He knows every hair on our head. He knows you intimately and personally. If you come to him, he knows you. He loves you. The heart of Christ towards his bride only beats love. We, we who have come to Christ were one time part of the people that were his enemies. But he's not just wrathful and just. He's merciful and loving. He sends Christ to die for you that he could be merciful to you. And when we come to him, he knows us and loves us. And he protects us. Consider the book of Exodus. God knew those who were his. The angel of death comes, and all of those with the blood on the door, he passed by. They were protected. All those in Christ who rightfully deserve to be judged. Christ takes their place, and on the last day, they will be passed over in judgment. He will see his son. He will see the goodness of Christ. But he tells us we must take refuge in him. This is coming to him by faith. We we come to him saying, I cannot stop your wrath. I have nothing 
in myself to shield myself from you. There's nobody around me who can shield me from you. There's no, no wall I can build up, no mountain I could tunnel into that could avoid you. So I run to you. I come by faith and say everything you've promised is true. When you promise that you'll forgive my sins, I'm bringing them to you by faith. I'm trusting you. I'm sheltering in you. Forgive me. Save me. When you say there's nothing I can do, I trust you. I stop trying. And I come to you with open and empty hands saying, I have nothing to give. I need your son. Shelter me. And he promises and then he fulfills. He says, come and I'll forgive. And guess what he does? He forgives. He says, come and I'll wash. And we bring our stains of sin to him and he washes them. We take refuge in him. We can't flee from him. We must flee to him. God is good and a savior, therefore he saves. But God is good, therefore he also judges. Verses 8 through 15. Verse 8, with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries. Just four things about God's judgment here. Number one, it's inescapable. Verse 8 is a reference to the flood with Noah. It's an overflowing flood. No one could escape in Noah's day. No one could escape if they weren't on the ark. God's judgment is inescapable. There is a day appointed for all of us to stand before him. We can wish it away. We can act like an ostrich and bury our head in the sand. We can say it's not coming, it's not coming, it's not coming, and it will come. It's inevitable, and it's inescapable. Secondly, his, the judgment of God is final and total. Look at verse 8. He will make a complete end of the adversaries. Look at verse 9, the, the end of it. Trouble will not rise up a second time. Look at verse 14. He says, the Lord has given a commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods I will cut off. The, cra- the carved image and metal image, you will make your grave. You are vile. Look at verse 15, the end of it. He will utterly cut off. The judgment of God will come. And it will be total, and it will be final. Now, you're like, Assyria will rise no more, but they're still our enemies. Babylon comes. Greece comes. Rome comes. All of this is pointing to a day where Christ will one day come and judge the earth. And he will put all rebellion under his feet, and it will be no more. So it's inescapable. It's final. It's also wise. His judgment is wise. Look at verse 9. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise a second time. Verse 11. For from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. There's one coming from Nineveh, likely the, the king of Assyria, who plots. And this is Assyria, the world power, who has the best counselors of war who would be labeled as the wisest strategist in war. And the Lord says their counsel will come to nothing. His wisdom and judgment supersedes the wisdom of all humans. But this is not just Assyria. 
The word worthless in verse 11 is the Hebrew word belial. It's actually used in the book of 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 of Satan, where Satan, Belial, will be put down. One day, all the schemes of Satan, all of his wisdom, which are far wiser than we are, will be frustrated and brought to nothing. And unlike the wisdom of the world that says it's got to be power and might, it comes through humility, through a cross, through death, the death of Christ. It's inescapable, it's final, it's wise, and it's powerful. Look at verse 12. This is going to come, this judgment against Assyria will come not when they've been weakened. It's not like he's going to say, okay, you guys have had your day. You're kind of a fading superpower, so in comes the Lord to, to get victory. It says, though they are at full strength, and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict no more. The Lord will come against the world's superpower at its zenith and make it nothing. The book of Isaiah, chapter 36 and 37 Assyria comes against Judah. They surround Judah. They plot against Judah. They mock them for trusting the Lord. And overnight, 180,000 of Sennacherib's army are dead by one angel. All the Lord had to do was say, done. And they were done. His judgment will be a demonstration of his power. God is good. Therefore, he saves sinners. God is good. Therefore, he judges rebels. We said in the beginning, how we treat each other is dependent on our relationship to each other. I will treat my wife differently than any other woman on the face of the earth. I will treat my children differently than any other children on the face of the earth because of who they are in relationship to me. The Lord, in the same way, will deal with sinners differently based on how they relate to him. Either they are his through repentance and faith, and he relates to them only in mercy and grace and kindness. But those who hear and reject and continue to rebel, he relates to them as a judge. He relates to them as we will find here. So before us is a real choice. We either will reject God and say, I can do it my way, I know best, I don't need you, I'll rebel. Or we come to him, as he says, broken and empty-handed and say, I need you. And based on that response is how he treats us. We either stay his enemy in our sin, and judgment is inevitable and inescapable. Hell is a real thing. Or we come to him, and he says, like he says in Romans, there is now, therefore, no condemnation. How we relate to him is based on our relationship to him. I told you to tug a question away in the back of your heads. How does this, verses 1 through 14, have anything to do with comfort? Verse 15. Remember, the nation of Judah is about to be oppressed by Assyria. They're, they, by all human thought, are the next to get mowed down by this superpower. They're the next to get taken. They're the next to get oppressed. 
They're the next to have all the terrible things Assyria does happen to them. What a comfort a message of, I'll deliver you. They will not harm you would be. All this terrible stuff the Assyrians do, we have just read that God won't let it happen. In verse 15 we end, Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Imagine that the U.S. has no <clears throat> kind of military might in the world, and the world's superpower invades. And the message on TV is, they've been destroyed. What would that do for us? We would say, oh, we're safe. We're going to live. God's on our side. He cares about us. All of this judgment is a comfort to God's people who will be oppressed because he says, it won't happen. I won't let it happen. It's a word of good news. It's a word of peace for them. We find the same language in the book of Isaiah chapter 52 when Babylon is going to oppress Judah. And Isaiah says the very same thing. How beautiful the feet of him who publishes the news of good tiding and peace. God, God's message, Babylon won't take over. Well, praise the Lord for that. Greece will come next. Rome will come next. But in Romans chapter 10, we find there is also one who will have feet that bring good news and a message of peace. Christ has come and more than just destroyed earthly powers, has defeated all of the enemies of God's people. He has come and in his death and in his resurrection, he's defeated sin and death and Satan and the world. And the news we have is there's peace with God through Christ. There's, there's a way to be right with Him. And all of God's enemies will be put away. That's good news. That's comfort. When we, when we find that this God is jealous and we, we, we don't worship Him as we should, we find that He is avenging and wrathful and we break His law. What good news to hear there's been one who's destroyed sin. What good news to hear there's one who's destroyed Satan. What good news to hear there's one who's defeated death itself. But it came through judgment. It came because Christ tasted the judgment we deserve. God's salvation comes through judgment. As we close, it's because God is good and just that he judges all of his enemies. And it's because God is good and just that he saves sinners. He saves because he's just and good. So you must trust him. He says, come, come, come by faith. That's the only refuge we have. He's good and he's just. Let's pray. Father, we come and we pray that you would, by your spirit, Help us to see the rightness, the goodness of your justice. Help us to see the rightness and goodness of your salvation. We thank you that you have provided for us what we could never provide for ourselves. We praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.